0: Silas Marner by George Eliot Part 1, Chapter 2 Even people whose lives have been made various by learning sometimes find it hard to keep a fast hold on their habitual views of life, on their faith in the invisible, nay, on the sense that their past joys and sorrows are a real experience, when they are suddenly transported to a new land where the beings around them know nothing of their history and share none of their ideas. Where their mother earth shows another lap, and human life has other forms than those on which their souls have been nourished. Minds that have been unhinged from their old faith and love have perhaps sought this lethian influence of exile, in which the past becomes dreamy because its symbols have all vanished, and the present too is dreamy because it is linked with no memories. But even their experience may hardly enable them thoroughly to imagine what was the effect on a simple weaver like Silas Marner, when he left his own country and people, and came to settle in Raveloe. Nothing could be more unlike his native town, set within sight of the widespread hillsides, than this low, wooded region, where he felt hidden even from the heavens by the screening trees and hedgerows. There was nothing here when he rose in the deep morning quiet and looked out on the dewy brambles and rank-tufted grass that seemed to have any relation with that life centering in Lantern Yard, which had once been to him the altar-place of high dispensations. The whitewashed walls, the little pews where well-known figures entered with a subdued rustling, and where first one well-known voice and then another Pitched in a peculiar key of petition, uttered phrases at once occult and familiar, like the amulet worn on the heart. The pulpit, where the minister delivered unquestioned doctrine, and swayed to and fro, and handled the book in a long-accustomed manner. The very pauses between the couplets of the hymn, as it was given out, and the recurrent swell of voices and song, These things had been the channel of divine influences to Marner. They were the fostering home of his religious emotions. They were Christianity and God's kingdom upon earth. A weaver who finds hard words in his hymn book knows nothing of abstractions, as the little child knows nothing of paternal love, but only knows one face and one lap towards which it stretches its arms for refuge and nurture. And what could be more unlike that lantern-yard world than the world in Raveloe? Orchards looking lazy with neglected plenty, the large church in the wide churchyard, which men gazed at, lounging at their own doors in service time, the purple-faced farmers jogging along the lanes or turning in at the rainbow, homesteads where men supped heavily and slept in the light of the evening hearth and where women seemed to be laying up a stock of linen for the life to come. There were no lips in Ravelo from which a word could fall that would stir Marner's benumbed faith to a sense of pain. In the early ages of the world, we know, it was believed that each territory was inhabited and ruled by its own divinities, so that a man could cross the bordering heights and be out of the reach of his native gods— whose presence was confined to the streams and the groves and the hills among which he had lived from his birth. And poor Silas was vaguely conscious of something not unlike the feeling of primitive men, when they fled thus, in fear or in sullenness, from the face of an unpropitious deity. It seemed to him that the power he had vainly trusted in among the streets and at the prayer-meetings was very far away from this land in which he had taken refuge— where men lived in careless abundance, knowing and needing nothing of that trust, which for him had been turned to bitterness. The little light he possessed spread its beams so narrowly that frustrated belief was a curtain broad enough to create for him the blackness of night. His first movement after the shock had been to work in his loom, and he went on with this unremittingly, never asking himself why, now he was come to Raveloe, He worked far on into the night to finish the tale of Mrs. Osgood's table linen sooner than she expected, without contemplating beforehand the money she would put into his hand for the work. He seemed to weave, like the spider, from pure impulse, without reflection. Every man's work, pursued steadily, tends in this way to become an end in itself, and so to bridge over the loveless chasms of his life." Silas's hand satisfied itself with throwing the shuttle, and his eyes with seeing the little squares in the cloth complete themselves under his effort. Then there were the calls of hunger, and Silas, in his solitude, had to provide his own breakfast, dinner, and supper, to fetch his own water from the well, and to put his own kettle on the fire. And all these immediate promptings helped, along with the weaving— to reduce his life to the unquestioning activity of a spinning insect. He hated the thought of the past. There was nothing that called out his love and fellowship toward the strangers he had come amongst, and the future was all dark, for there was no unseen love that cared for him. Thought was arrested by utter bewilderment, now its old narrow pathway was closed, and affection seemed to have died under the bruise that had fallen on its keenest nerves. But at last Mrs. Osgood's table linen was finished, and Silas was paid in gold. His earnings in his native town, where he worked for a wholesale dealer, had been after a lower rate. He had been paid weekly, and of his weekly earnings a large proportion had gone to objects of piety and charity. Now, for the first time in his life, he had five bright guineas put into his hand. No man expected a share of them, and he loved no man that he should offer him a share. But what were the guineas to him, who saw no vista beyond countless days of weaving? It was needless for him to ask that, for it was pleasant to him to feel them in his palm and look at their bright faces, which were all his own. It was another element of life, like the weaving and the satisfaction of hunger, subsisting quite aloof from the life of belief and love from which he had been cut off. The weaver's hand had known the touch of hard-won money even before the palm had grown to its full breadth. For twenty years, mysterious money had stood to him as the symbol of earthly good and the immediate object of toil. He had seemed to love it little in the years when every penny had its purpose for him— for he loved the purpose then. But now, when all purpose was gone, the habit of looking towards the money and grasping it with a sense of fulfilled effort made a loam that was deep enough for the seeds of desire. And as Silas walked homeward across the fields in the twilight, he drew out the money and thought it was brighter in the gathering gloom. About this time an incident happened, which seemed to open a possibility of some fellowship with his neighbors. One day, taking a pair of shoes to be mended, he saw the cobbler's wife seated by the fire, suffering from the terrible symptoms of heart disease and dropsy, which he had witnessed as the precursors of his mother's death. He felt a rush of pity at the mingled sight and remembrance, and recalling the relief his mother had found from a simple preparation of foxglove, he promised Sally Oates to bring her something that would ease her, since the doctor did her no good. In this office of charity, Silas felt, for the first time since he had come to Raveloe, a sense of unity between his past and present life, which might have been the beginning of his rescue from the insect-like existence into which his nature had shrunk. But Sally Oates's disease had raised her into a personage of much interest and importance among the neighbors and the fact of her having found relief from drinking Silas Marner's stuff became a matter of general discourse. When Dr. Kimball gave physic, it was natural that it should have an effect. But when a weaver, who came from nobody-knew-where, worked wonders with a bottle of brown waters, the occult character of the process was evident. Such a sort of thing had not been known since the wise woman at Tarley died— "'and she had charms as well as stuff. "'Everybody went to her when their children had fits. "'Silas Marner must be a person of the same sort, "'for how did he know what would bring back Sally Oates's breath "'if he didn't know a fine sight more than that? "'The wise woman had words that she muttered to herself "'so that you couldn't hear what they were, "'and if she tied a bit of red thread around a child's toe the while, "'it would keep off the water in the head.' There were women in Raveloe, at that present time, who had worn one of the wise women's little bags round their necks, and, in consequence, had never had an idiot child, as Ann Coulter had. Silas Marner could very likely do as much, and more, and now it was all clear he should have come from unknown parts and be so comical-looking. But Sally Oates must mind and not tell the doctor, for he would be sure to set his face against Marner— He was always angry about the wise woman, and used to threaten those who went to her that they should have none of his help any more. Silas now found himself and his cottage suddenly beset by mothers who wanted him to charm away the whooping cough or bring back the milk, and by men who wanted stuff against the rheumatics or the knots in the hands. And, to secure themselves against a refusal, the applicants brought silver in their palms." Silas might have driven a profitable trade in charms, as well as in his small list of drugs, but money on this condition was no temptation to him. He had never known an impulse towards falsity, and he drove one after another away with growing irritation, for the news of him as a wise man had spread even to Tarley, and it was long before people ceased to take long walks for the sake of asking his aid but the hope in his wisdom was at length changed into dread, for no one believed him when he said he knew no charms and could work no cures, and every man and woman who had an accident or a new attack after applying to him set the misfortune down to master Marner's ill will and irritated glances. Thus it came to pass that his movement of pity towards Sally Oates, which had given him a transient sense of brotherhood, heightened the repulsion between him and his neighbors, and made his isolation more complete. Gradually the guineas, the crowns, and the half-crowns grew to a heap, and Marner drew less and less for his own wants, trying to solve the problem of keeping himself strong enough to work sixteen hours a day on as small an outlay as possible. Have not men shut up in solitary imprisonment found an interest in marking the moments by straight strokes of a certain length on the wall, until the growth of the sum of straight strokes, arranged in triangles, has become a mastering purpose? Do we not while away moments of inanity or fatigued waiting by repeating some trivial movement or sound, until the repetition has bred a want which is incipient habit?" that will help us to understand how the love of accumulating money grows an absorbing passion in men whose imaginations, even in the very beginning of their hoard, showed them no purpose beyond it. Marner wanted the heaps of ten to grow into a square, and then into a larger square, and every added guinea, while it was itself a satisfaction, bred a new desire. In this strange world, made a hopeless riddle to him, he might, if he had had a less intense nature, have sat weaving, weaving, looking towards the end of his pattern, or towards the end of his web, till he forgot the riddle, and everything else but his immediate sensations. But the money had come to mark off his weaving into periods, and the money not only grew, but it remained with him. He began to think it was conscious of him, as his loom was— and he would on no account have exchanged those coins which had become his familiars for other coins with unknown faces. He handled them, he counted them, till their form and color were like the satisfaction of a thirst to him. But it was only in the night, when his work was done, that he drew them out to enjoy their companionship. He had taken up some bricks in his floor underneath his loom, And here he had made a hole in which he had set the iron pot that contained his guineas and silver coins, covering the bricks with sand whenever he replaced them. Not that the idea of being robbed presented itself often or strongly to his mind. Hoarding was common in country districts in those days. There were old laborers in the parish of Raveloe who were known to have their savings by them, probably inside their flock-beds but their rustic neighbors, though not all of them as honest as their ancestors in the days of King Alfred, had not imaginations bold enough to lay a plan of burglary. How could they have spent the money in their own village without betraying themselves? They would be obliged to run away, a course as dark and dubious as a balloon journey. So, year after year, Silas Marner had lived in this solitude, his guineas rising in the iron pot, and his life narrowing and hardening itself more and more into a mere pulsation of desire and satisfaction that had no relation to any other being. His life had reduced itself to the functions of weaving and hoarding, without any contemplation of an end towards which the functions tended. The same sort of process has perhaps been undergone by wiser men, when they have been cut off from faith and love. Only instead of a loom and a heap of guineas— They have had some erudite research, some ingenious project, or some well-knit theory. Strangely, Marner's face and figure shrank and bent themselves into a constant mechanical relation to the objects of his life, so that he produced the same sort of impression as a handle or a crooked tube, which has no meaning standing apart. The prominent eyes that used to look trusting and dreamy now looked as if they had been made to see only one kind of thing that was very small, like tiny grain, for which they hunted everywhere. And he was so withered and yellow that though he was not yet forty, the children always called him Old Master Marner. Yet even in this stage of withering a little incident happened which showed the sap of affection was not all gone. It was one of his daily tasks to fetch his water from a well a couple of fields off— and for this purpose, ever since he came to Raveloe, he had had a brown earthenware pot, which he held as his most precious utensil among the very few conveniences he had granted himself. It had been his companion for twelve years, always standing in the same spot, always lending its handle to him in the early morning, so that his form had an expression for him of willing helpfulness." and the impress of its handle on his palm gave a satisfaction mingled with that of having the fresh, clear water. One day, as he was returning from the well, he stumbled against the step of the stile, and his brown pot, falling with force against the stones that overarched the ditch below him, was broken in three pieces. Silas picked up the pieces and carried them home with grief in his heart. The brown pot could never be of use to him any more, but he stuck the bits together and propped the ruin in its old place for a memorial. This is the history of Silas Marner, until the fifteenth year after he came to Raveloe. The livelong day he sat in his loom, his ear filled with its monotony, his eyes bent close down on the slow growth of sameness in the brownish web. His muscles moving with such even repetition that their pause seemed almost as much a constraint as the holding of his breath. But at night came his revelry. At night he closed his shutters and made fast his doors and drew forth his gold. Long ago the heaps of coins had become too large for the iron pot to hold them and he had made for them two thick leather bags, which wasted no room in their resting place, but lent themselves flexibly to every corner. How the guineas shone as they came pouring out of the dark leather mouths! The silver bore no large proportion in amount to the gold, because the long pieces of linen which formed his chief work were always partly paid for in gold, and out of the silver he supplied his own bodily wants— choosing always the shillings and sixpences to spend in this way. He loved the guineas best, but he would not change the silver. The crowns and half-crowns that were his own earnings, begotten by his labor, he loved them all. He spread them out in heaps and bathed his hands in them, then he counted them and set them up in regular piles, and felt their rounded outline between his thumb and fingers and thought fondly of the guineas that were only half-earned by the work in his loom, as if they had been unborn children. Thought of the guineas that were coming, slowly, through the coming years, through all his life, which spread far away before him, the end quite hidden by countless days of weaving. No wonder his thoughts were still with his loom and his money when he made his journeys through the fields and the lanes to fetch and carry home his work so that his steps never wandered to the hedge-banks the laneside in search of the once-familiar herbs. These, too, belonged to the past, from which his life had shrunk away, like a rivulet that has sunk far down from the grassy fringe of its old breath into a little shivering thread that cuts a groove for itself in the barren sand. But about the Christmas of that fifteenth year, a second great change came over Marner's life— and his history became blent in a singular manner with the life of his neighbors.